Would you pray with me? Jesus taught us that where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in our midst. And so, Lord, as we come on the beauty of this morning, a time in which we see the signs of the changing of the seasons about us, and know within ourselves that we too are changing, we are grateful that we may come into the presence of him of whom we sing, O Thou who changest not, abide with us. We look for your presence among us, and thank you, O God, that as we hear in the beauty of this sanctuary and the serenity of these surroundings, can feel your presence. Lord, we know that if it were for our own merit that that would allow us to come, who of us would be able? But you invite us and you welcome us and you give to us in this moment an opportunity to open our lives to you and to say, Oh God, we're sorry for the things that we have done this past week that have grieved you. But we also want to say thank you, God, for the many blessings that we have known that come to us in many and different ways, some unexpected. The joy of family, the privilege to work or to be able to serve in capacities if we are not now working and are retired. We thank you too, God, that we in your loving kindness enjoy the beauty that surrounds us, people, the land in which we live. And we thank you for our nation and its leaders, asking that you would give to them wisdom and guidance. And, O oh God, we pray too. But as we come together here to worship you, that our words in song and spoken may be words that are good to your ears, that glorify your name, that, that lift you up. And as we come also, Lord, we come with empty cups, asking that you would fill them, and as you fill them, that you would make available to us a loving kindness far beyond our imagining. Be with those in our community who know sorrow, who have health needs, and, O oh God, be with those who have lost loved ones. And more than that, Lord, be with us each day of our lives. This we ask in the gracious name of our Lord, who, as he prayed, said, When you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for the privilege of being here this morning, and I am very, very grateful that I may be here and share this pulpit and this church that I've known about and been in a time or two in my previous years in, in uh, Shreveport prior to 1992, and I remember the pastor who built this for you with fondness and I, or helped you build it, and I am very grateful to stand in this pulpit today to bring to you 
the word of truth. Now, every time I do that, I have to, to remind myself of a question my second son asked many years ago. We were, Susie and I were just married, and I had a, two children by a previous marriage, and, and my second son was with us, and we had three little churches up in south-central Iowa, right on the Missouri line, and each sermon that morning at, eight, at, at 9, 10, and 11 o'clock, I began the sermon with the same little anecdote and um, a little bit of humor and uh, then preached three different sermons because they were distinctly three different congregations. And my second son listened, I thought, rather intently during all of those sermons. And as we were leaving the church, Susie and I were talking about some people we needed to, to visit or see about the next week that had, were ill or, or had special needs. And Jeff, my second son, was pushing me on the shoulder. You know how kids do in the back seat of the car when you're going someplace and you're talking and they want to ask a question, Dad? And I would say, just a minute, Jeff. And, and I continued talking with Susie and I'd get another punch on the shoulder, Dad? And that continued three or four times. And finally I stopped and I said, okay, Jeff. Or I stopped talking to her and I said, okay, Jeff, what is it that you need? He said, Dad. I said, yes, you have my ears, hon. He said, that story you told this morning. I said, yes. What about it? He said, Dad, was it true or were you just preaching? I hope what I bring to you this morning is not just words that a preacher would say because you expect a preacher to say that. But I hope that out of the scripture that we share that we will find truth for our living and our understanding in the days to come. A brief word about Susie and I. We are in our 38th year of marriage. I've been a minister since, I've, been, I've had credentials since 1956, so I've, I've been credentialed over 50 years now. Took my first church as a 19-year-old kid in 1958 up in central Arkansas as a student and have been serving in pulpits across uh, Arkansas, Iowa, Louisiana, and Florida in the years since. Susie and I retired last year from active ministry and are enjoying uh, our home and our new relationships we're building up at Plain Dealing, Arkansas. Uh, up Louisiana, excuse me. We're so close to Arkansas, it's almost like living in Lapland. You know, they, in fact, one of the ladies who lives in town, when she came there, she, the realtor brought her out of Bossier City heading north, and she thought she was up in Louisville, Arkansas, and called her husband to say, I found the perfect house for us. Well, where is it located? Louisville, Arkansas. And he says, well, how come you're calling from a Louisiana number? <laughs> so my friends say, John, why did you choose to move to Plain Dealing of all places? Little bitty town. And I said, let me tell you something. For 14 years, Susie and I lived in a town where sometimes it took us 15 minutes just to get out of our driveway onto the main thoroughfare. It was that crowded and congested. We had a great congregation, loved them dearly, but as, as I told them, I said, I want to move someplace that when I sneeze, I don't want my neighbor three doors down saying, God bless you. I want to be able to have a little elbow room. I want to be where people know each other. I wouldn't have known that neighbor three doors down. 
and I want to go where people neighbor again. Now, they were good people. Don't misunderstand me. We love Florida, but we're glad to be where we are. Now, let me share with you a, a word from Paul out of the third chapter of uh, the letter he wrote to Romans. Paul is, is writing to a church he's never, never seen. And his, his hope is, is, is really threefold. He wants to send a letter of introduction because he knows he's bound for there. He's in chains, or he's in under arrest, house arrest mostly, and he um, is uh, headed for Rome. He had appealed to Rome after a uh, adverse or a, a, a demand for a very adverse um, judgment against him was made in Caesarea Philippi. And he appealed to Caesar, being a Roman citizen, he could appeal to the final court, uh, to the Supreme Court, to a hearing of those who represent Caesar, which meant he had to go to Rome. But he could do that as a, as a Roman citizen. Had he stayed in Caesarea Philippi, he probably would have died right there, because those who opposed him wanted his death. And he saw this as an opportunity to leave an area where he had found a lot of opposition and go to Rome, get himself cleared, and then go on to what we know today as France and Spain in the Roman world. That was the province of Gaul. So he was writing a letter of introduction, and he wants to introduce himself, not only personally, but also in terms of his belief system why he's doing what he is. And then third, he wants to greet the folks that he does know in those house churches there. And if you look at the closing chapter, there are a number of people that he greets by name. Send greetings too. Now, when I first read Romans and thought of Paul writing to the church at Rome, I had this vision of a humongous church, kind of like the church at the head of Texas, like the St. Peter's in, in Rome now. Big church. Well, actually, it may have been no more than just five little congregations, some of whom are no bigger than what we are here gathered this morning. And this letter was circulated, and he wanted to get from them not only an entree into their community where he could preach the gospel to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish folks, but that he might find support to send him on to Gaul to do his preaching. Well, we all know that he got there, Nero burned down Rome in an urban renewal project that got away, and um, uh, he blamed it on the Christians because the Christians kept talking about the world was going to end in fire, and he said, look what they did. They jump-started it. They started this fire, and most of Rome burned. Well, playing politics with things like that is not a brand new thing in any way, and uh, Nero declared all Christians in the city were to be summarily ex uh, uh, arrested and executed. And Paul, by virtue of the fact that he was a Roman citizen, was not crucified, as le our, uh, legend and tradition tell us Peter was, but he was beheaded. That was the way a Roman citizen was crucified. And he had 24 hours to get his, his affairs in order. So this is the people to whom he's writing, and that's the destiny he's going to. And he's trying to say to them, let me tell you what I believe in. 
And he knows he's writing to ex-Jews, to people who were former pagans. Most of us think of the Roman world as non-religious. It was rife with religion. All kinds of religion. Making all kinds of demands upon people. And these people from various backgrounds, some of them new Christians, were gathered here in a, uh, in a fledgling church. And he was trying to give to them his understanding of this wondrous thing God did in Jesus. And this is how he states it in the third chapter. Let me share it with you. Beginning at the 21st verse. But now a righteousness from God apart from law. This is his big deal. You don't have to observe all 613 laws, statutes, and commandments of the Jews. Now, he didn't throw the Ten Commandments out. He's just saying that they are not as important for your relationship to God as you once believed if you were a former Jew. All these have been known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, this new righteousness being made right with God, comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. Now the words Paul used had very real and different meanings. And he takes those words, righteousness, Redemption, sin, justification, atonement. And he uses them, words that people in everyday life in Rome would understand in one context, moves them into the realm of theology and gives new meaning to them. Now they are kind of difficult for us because we have 2,000 years of veneer laid on top of them, of preaching and theologizing. And I'm not opposed to either one of those, otherwise I wouldn't be where I am. But the veneer has gotten so thick we've lost the meanings of the word. Let's explore together and see what we can find out together. Paul believed that God wanted folks to be right with them, in right relationship. And so when he talks about righteousness, he's talking about a right relationship to God. And the only way we get it is that God gives it to us by believing in Jesus and that comes to us as a gift. Now, there are two problems there. Outside of Galilee and Palestine, Jesus was only beginning to be known across the Roman world, except for maybe a few official circles where, you know, who's causing all this stir down in, in, in Palestine, in Judea, might be the question. Take care of the problem, as some head of state might say today, if there was an uprising in a territory that was controlled or operated by this or another country. So Jesus is basically unknown, and being in right relationship usually depended upon some sort of animal or serial sacrifice, some sort of contribution of money, some sort of um, obeying certain laws and requirements and some of these get to be so obtuse, it's sort of like uh, the story of Alice in Wonderland, where Alice says, how do you live in Never Never Land? And the Mad Hatter says to her, you've got to believe 100 impossible things before breakfast every day. Sometimes faith becomes almost like that. 
And here's this conglomerate of people that Paul's trying to say, this is what I believe. And it comes to us, right relationship with God comes to us as a gift. Now, that's hard for you and me to deal with today because you and I live in a culture where we pay for what we get. And we live by a standard that says, you get what you pay for. During the middle 80s, I was director, Susan, of Christian education here for the state of Louisiana in, in, for the Methodist Church. And I found that if I offered a seminar, it didn't make any difference how great the resource people were. If I offered it and said it's free, nobody came. But if six months later I offered that same, that same seminar with the same leadership, and I said, no, by the way, it's going to cost you 50 bucks, we'd have standing room only. Kind of weird. But we live in a culture where we get what we pay for. We want to be in control of it in a certain sense. And Paul says it comes as a gift. God says, I love you so much, I want to give you this relationship as a gift. Now, as we think about ourselves, I don't know about you, but the man I see in the mirror every morning is not always a perfect person. In fact, probably much less perfect than I'd like to believe. Susie and I, my wife, and I attended a, a marriage seminar up in Sioux, uh, Sioux City, Iowa, and and the seminar leader was a personal friend. And during the week, started on Friday night, went all day Saturday and most of Sunday afternoon. And sometime toward middle of Saturday morning, Russ Wilson, the seminar leader, said, I want all of you to take your little notebooks you've been writing in and on a, on a clean page, uh, write down something that, about yourself that your spouse doesn't know. And I sat down and scribbled off something and got up and went to get a cup of coffee and turned my book upside down and left it with Susie. And she wrote and she wrote and she wrote and she wrote. And finally she gave hers to my, me and I went off over to the corner of the room to read it. And all of a sudden I heard this shriek. And somebody began to talk rather loudly about my heritage. And my book comes sailing across the room at me. And by this time I'm cracked up laughing. Russ is horrified. Susie is just angry as a dickens. And he knew he was seeing a marriage come apart at a, at a more joy in your marriage weekend. And so he rushes over and he says, what happened? What happened? And they want to take us into another room. And I'm just laughing hysterically. And finally, he, 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 everybody quiets down and he says, what did you write that upset her? I said, it's very simple. I just wrote there, I'm perfect. <laughs> Well, she let me know in no uncertain terms by her reaction that that was far from the truth. I look at myself, I look back on that ridiculous moment, but, but I, I look at myself and I think, Paul's right. He said, all have sinned. In the Roman world, to say you sin means you miss the mark. It's a term from the Olympics. Heritage of the Greek experience. In the javelin throw, then it wasn't for distance, it was for accuracy. And if you didn't hit the target, you sinned. You missed the mark. Well, I don't know about you folks, but David, I missed the mark quite often. Quite often. More than I'd like to admit. Now, Paul says, what's the remedy? 
we seem to be making the same mistakes over and over again. And so he then he looks around the marketplace where he is as he writes this letter. Some say Corinth, some say Ephesus. But wherever he's writing from, he looks around the marketplace, and in the Roman world it's very similar across the empire. Of course, there's the stalls for the vending of different produce and products. But over on one side of the marketplace, there would be a place where human beings are being sold. We remember that story. Paul doesn't condemn it. He just says this is what's happening. And there, if a person is sold, you can only get free by two or three ways. In another portion of the marketplace, he'll look and, he, and there's the bema, the bar. And there's where the magistrates sit and they hear cases. Attorneys practice before the bar, right? That's where that word comes from, right out of the marketplace of the ancient Roman Empire, out of the city where Paul was writing. And if you lifted your eyes above the canopies of the tents and the buildings around the marketplace, you'd see on the highest hill around a beautiful temple dedicated to a Roman or Greek god or goddess. And so Paul looks at these things and says, this is what God has done. He's redeemed you. Now he borrows that word from where they're selling slaves. You can only be freed if you pay the redemption price. Some slaves were freed because they could save enough money. This didn't happen often because everything you earned as the slave of your owner belongs to your owner. But some would be allowed to keep some, and after a while they could save enough to buy their, their freedom. Or someone could buy it for them. They were redeemed. In another case, they, they may do some lifelong, they may do some great heroic service for their, their master, and the master would say, because of that, I'm giving you freedom. I love the movie Ben-Hur. Remember when Charlton Heston's character, Ben-Hur, is there, that galley slave in the bottom of this Roman warship, and they're going into, into battle, and Jack Hawkins' character, the, the general, is the head of the, of the uh, navy, uh, they, that's, they, called their, they didn't call them admirals, they called them generals back then. And he looses the locks on the chain binding Charlton Heston. The net result is that Roman ship is sunk. The general thinks he's lost the war. He wants to drown. Charlton Heston saves him, forces him to live, gets him ashore, and they find out they've had a great victory. And the general adopts Charlton Heston as his son and gives him his freedom because of his action. That was one of the ways you could be redeemed. The other is, is if you serve someone your lifelong and they, they came to a point of dying, many of them because of faithful servitude over all their, the lives that they were together, many of the owners would, in their last will and testament, grant freedom to their slaves. Redemption. Paul says, you're redeemed from the slavery to whatever it is in your life that binds you, that keeps you, that holds you, that keeps you from being right with God. And in our world today, there are a lot of things that keep us, that, that, that hold us slave. Go to any city in a nation, 
and you'll find drugs. Some of us have struggled with alcohol. There are many other kinds of addictions, but there's more than that to which we are held hostage or bond. And Paul says, we are redeemed by what God did in Jesus. And then he says, we're justified. Now, I don't know about you, but that word still has such a stilted ring to it. It doesn't. How does it fit the world in which I live? That was brought home to me many years ago. I served in communion at a little bitty church in North Arkansas on a Sunday evening, and we had a blind man sit right about where Ray is sitting right now. And he, he didn't come to the chancel, so I, being young and war- eager and wanting to serve everybody, went out and held a trace before him, and I said, the body and blood of Jesus Christ given for you. And Ed turned his face toward me, and sightless eyes looked at me, and he said, I don't feel justified. So I backed up and took the elements back to the altar, and the next day I went to see him. And Ed then told me what was happening in his life, and the sin that he had carried for such a long time, that felt, he felt like denied him access to that communion. We talked and we prayed, and in a few days, not long afterwards, Ed was ready when we served communion again to come to the altar and kneel and receive. Justified. That's right there from the legal portion. In the Roman world, if the state charged you with something, you were guilty. If you were charged, you were guilty. You had to prove your innocence, but they didn't use the word innocence. Today you can be acquitted or you can be found innocent or the case can be thrown out for lack of evidence. But if you were charged by the state, you were guilty as charged. And you had to prove yourself innocent. And if you did that, the ruling from the magistrate was, you are justified. You are justified. You are a just person in the face of the charges brought against you. And you're freed. And when you were released, you were told that you were again a right person, a righteous person. So Paul borrows those terms to say, this is what God has done. This is what God has done for you and for me in Jesus Christ. And then he does something that, as he lifts his eyes beyond the level of the market, street level of the marketplace, and he sees that temple up there in his mind's eye, and he said, God put Jesus forward as an act of atonement. Now, atonement is a word, again, that's become so layered with the veneer of theology and church that we've lost its impact. But I like to divide it up. Atonement, A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T. And the way I divide it is to say A-T hyphen, O-N-E hyphen, meant. And that literally means the state of being at one. Jesus said that I and the Father are one. And I don't want to chase that theological rabbit right now. But he felt like that any one of us could be one with the Father. 
He believed that deeply. He believed Jesus deep, uh, uh, believed it deeply. And this is why he said it. The Father and I are one. When you entered a Roman temple, the way you gained access is you had to buy or present a libation of wine. That was your RSVP into the presence of the God or Goddess. The Old Testament calls it an act of propitiation. I mean, the, the Old King James Version calls it an act of propitiation. I remember the first time I tried to say that leading a responsive reading, I stumbled all over it. And a sweet lady in the congregation who knew how to pronounce it did it for me. But all it means is that we are presented as worthy of coming before the Lord, of being at one. This is what Paul was trying to say to this diverse group. People who had very different backgrounds and religious experience and understanding. And he's saying to them, God did something in Jesus that was for you and for me. And that act of love can release you from bondage to sin, redemption. That act of love declares you not guilty, justified, and makes you a righteous person. And it comes as a gift because God wants this relationship maybe even more than we do. Doesn't force it. But offers it. And it's here. And later on, Paul will help us understand how do we live this out? By letting those things that made us free and released us from our sin and that made us at one with God by living those out with our neighbors in our community. Whether it's a small community of faith believers or seekers or community of neighborhood or even a city. This is God's action. What's in a word? Paul would say a lot. Some old words need to be brought back and re-understood. And today, this is the word I share with you. As Paul said, this is how God loves you and me. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, may the words that we have stated, the thoughts we have mined, and the truth we have sought be worthy and acceptable not only to you, but to our ears, and may they become guideposts by which we can live together. In your name, amen.